Okay, how about if we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for having safely brought us to this day and to this place. And we look up to you in our weakness and we need your help. Help me to speak truthfully and clearly. Help us to listen to what your word is saying with eager and humble hearts that you would strengthen us in what is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, um, I became friends with a guy called David. He was an accountant. He'd just become a Christian. It was, it was an odd story. He'd got off the plane at Singapore and went to have a look at this, I think it's a Hindu garden of all these sort of scenes from hell, I think. And um, anyhow, that was the thing that got him um, to think, gosh, maybe... And you know, within a few months, he had put his faith in Christ. He then did the, the, the professional year, which is, those some of you will know, it's a horrendous year. This course you've got to do to become a chartered accountant, and it's just monstrous, the amount of work they do. And um, he came to me as a young Christian and said, Ian, I spent an awful lot of my time at work, and then travelling to work, recovering from work. He said, it's a massive part of my life. He was involved in the youth ministry on the Friday night and was, was uh, learning how to serve there. But he said... Is, does it make any difference now as a Christian how I do my um, what's such a big part of my life and I hadn't given a huge amount of thought to that area so we just sat down to find whatever passages we could find to read the scriptures and work out uh, what the very clear word of God says there's about 850 separate references to work in, in the 66 books of the Bible there's quite a bit to look at but there's some famous passages which we will touch on briefly today and it was interesting the, the difference it made for him when he discovered what, as a Christian man, should be the marks of his work. And uh, I'll mention it a bit later, what, what he discovered. Um, now, you remember we're looking at what it means to be human. Very important area that's never, or it's rarely explicitly looked at in our culture. But what it is to be human and how humans flourish is an unspoken background to so many of the difficult issues that we face uh, in our society where there's quite a bit of debate and discussion. Well, that's a polite description of how we do it. But, um, and so we're looking at what does the Bible, what does God say? Jesus clearly believes that the Old Testament is the word of God and we're, we're going to look at what God has said there. And we've been using this CBR and um, someone said to me this week that they'd, they'd been travelling around and they'd noticed CBR at a few places and they found it quite helpful that, as a grid that we're looking at. So last, I think uh, Andrew used it last week when we were looking at sex and we'll look at why sex and work are the first two that we're looking at at specific areas in a moment. If you want to understand humans, we are created, we're masterpieces, created beautifully, wonderfully. You are by God. That's the C. The B is you're broken and seriously broken. Um, and in fact, one of the words in the, it has got the sense of we're twisted, uh, iniquity. And, and that comes up into every single area, our brokenness, how we think, um, how we do all sorts of things. But from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, God is committed to restoration, to healing us and restoring us and making us fully and beautifully human. The model, of course, is Jesus. He is, the, he is the full, healthy human. So let's have a look at what the Bible says about work. And under those headings, created, broken, restored. Now, you might, you might ask, you might not, you might ask, why work? 
Um, it's obvious that sex is a very important part of human life. Um, and in the Bible, it's one of the, one of the three things that's said about us in Genesis 1.27, um, that he made us male and female. It's very deeply part of what it is to be human. And um, we're going to look on Monday at the, at the vast difference there is between using the word sex as against the word gender. And yet some of you will have noticed, I've noticed that even in myself now, where I should say sex, I say gender. And yet they are vastly different uh, realities that we're talking about. And we need to understand how that works and why it works. But male and female is one of the things that God mentions about the deep reality of who you are. But why work? Well, because right from the very beginning, this creature made in the image of God, work is essential. Work is not just something we do, oh, what a shame we have to do work. No, no, no. Work is essential to being humans. And if it's true, which it is true, that you are made in the image of God, then it really does matter that in a very peculiar way that we often don't notice, God is introduced to us in Genesis 1 in a way that he is not introduced in any other faith system at all as a worker. He's working, he's making stuff, he's shaping stuff, he's creating stuff. In Genesis 2, it does increasingly picture almost like a potter uh, building something. Uh, in all the cultures around where the um, Bible is written, in Mesopotamia and in Palestine and then the ancient Greeks, the, you know, the gods were, they're not creators like that. The world is made after war and sex and it's a bloody, messy business, the world. And the world is not a good place. We've looked at this last year. That quite a few of the religions around where Israel was, much bigger, more impressive cultures, the world was an evil goddess who'd been killed by the local good guy, Baal or, or Marduk, and then cut down the middle, turned inside out. And the world that you live on is the rotting body of a female goddess. It's not good. Um, but God is pictured here in Genesis 1 as, this, as, a, as a creator and as a king. There's no fight. There's no sort of you know, um, sexual misadventures that lie behind it. It's just a king who decides to make and create. And it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And we're in his image. So it's not at all surprising that when you meet humans, they're introduced as people doing work. It's not some shabby leftover of the, of the fall. So if you have a look at Genesis 1, I've mentioned the verse 127, the next verse, uh, after God has made them, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, etc. So here, humans, uh, the man and the woman, are called on to be like God, to rule, to oversee, and then in chapter 2, it's even more explicit. Because in chapter 2, it says this in verse 8 of God and then us in verse 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. So God is pictured to us here as a gardener. He makes a garden. Some of you do that. Some of you enjoy doing that. Uh, aren't we all different? I mean, <laughs> I really enjoy gardens and flowers. I hate gardening. Um, but it's something you've got to do, as you can see, by our backyard. But um, it's beautiful. Um, but God is a gardener. He plants the garden. Again, he's making something. He's shaping something. Then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to sit back and drink martinis, to work it 
and take care of it. Humans, in the, before there was any sin or anything gone wrong, we are designed and made to be workers, to do something, to affect something, to, as he says, the two words it uses are to work it and take care of it, which means to sort of look after the garden and to develop it, to work it, to extend it into what seemed to be the, the chaos outside the Garden of Eden. As some of us picture that the whole earth was the Garden of Eden. No, no, that's not the way the Bible pictures it. There's the Garden of Eden and then the rest is just sort of exuberant chaos that the humans were going to extend the garden into. So God is the worker, so we are workers. That's why we're looking at it. Uh, you need to understand humans as sexual creatures. You need to understand humans as creatures that are made to work. We're made to be doing something significant. Work is inherently a good thing. Now, we're going to look in a moment. It does get harder after sin. But it is not a result of the fall. Right? It was all, humans were always going to be workers. And I think we kind of know that, that we need to be doing something. This is the curse for very, very rich people often. And that's why often their lives fall apart so terribly, because they don't have obvious work to do. That's actually not good for us. So God is a worker, therefore we are workers. And Dorothy Sayers, uh, you can, I, I'd recommend if you, if you like reading, and think that she's got a terrific essay which you can find in a million places on the net called Why Work. It was written at the end of World War II. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is a very impressive um, playwright and thinker. But she says the great mistake we've made with work is we think it's only something you do for pay. But in that essay she argues, no, no, we've got to see that work is a good thing in and of itself. In fact, she even says quite daringly, we don't work so we can live. We live so we can work. And that's almost a scary overstatement. Uh, but I think she's onto something. She's saying if you think of work primarily as something that just gets you a pay pack, it is part of what we, why, we, why we work. But if, if you miss the, the reality and the significance and importance of the work itself, the dignity of it, we, um, we've lost something. And that's something which God would like to correct us on if we're his people. Um, she also notes this, um, and I, I have noticed this secondarily uh, with some men I knew who fought in World War II. They're all, the men I knew who fought are all dead. There's a lot of them still alive. But it was interesting, one of them in particular who hated, he came back from the war, badly damaged, both emotionally and terribly badly burned uh, from plane accidents. But he, even though he hated you know, serving up in New Guinea and how hot it was and dangerous it was, he always spoke about his work there. There was something about the way he spoke it that seemed to be so much more deeply satisfying, though terrifying, than his years of working with a, with a well-known insurance company, where he basically worked to pay off the house and look after the kids, etc. And, and Dorothy Sayers notes that too. She said that people in the, in the wartime are actually working for, there's something, they knew what they were doing mattered. So the work itself mattered, and they could see that it mattered. And so many people have found that a horrifying but golden time in their work life. And because humans are made to be doing something significant. Whether you're paid for it or not, it doesn't really matter. It's unfortunate that in our heads we have a very clear distinction between unpaid and paid work. But doing something shaping the creation, keeping it healthy, developing it, blessing people, uh, whether it's paid or not, it's significant that humans do it. So that's the first thing, friends, the C of the CBR, that we are made as workers. And there's a couple of verses in the, in the New Testament that suggest that perhaps we may even have jobs to do in heaven. 
So if you think that's going to be Club Med, I'm sure there'll be plenty of time to rest because, because as we'll see, one of, the, one of the big things that the Bible is also on about is work, but rest. And some of us need to hear that. We need to hear the call to rest. Uh, is, it's, it's in the Big Ten. So let's have a look at the brokenness. What difference does sin make to work? You might think it doesn't make much difference at all. I'd suggest it makes a massive difference. So when you come to Christ, like Dave Lamb, the accountant, to think, what, is, what does God say about work? That's important because what our culture has taught us uh, is significantly different. And you'd be shocked if it wasn't. Right? Uh, so what difference does it make? Well, the interesting thing, if you, go, if you go back to Genesis 3, and we have been bouncing around these chapters but looking at different parts of it, that as soon as sin enters into human life and the, the appalling way that we treated God, you can take it for granted because the Bible is remarkably undramatic often. So it tells stories of Jesus doing miracles where, and you think, they just move on. You think, hang on, he just raised a bloke from the dead. Can we just stop and goggle at that, you know? And you go, oh, did you see that? Right? No, it just moves on to the next thing. Right? And same with this, with this uh, Genesis 3. They sin, they do it with something. It's an, a horrible act of treachery uh, and, and a mistreatment of God who's done nothing but good to them. But the first time they hear a lie about God, they suck it in, that they'll be better off if they disobeyed God and he won't judge them anyhow. Um, then they immediately, the sin affects their relationship with each other. They don't feel they can trust each other. They need to hide. That's the significance of putting on clothes. And that's why we keep secrets, isn't it? Right? Because we know that for all of us, there's things about us that we think if people knew what we were really like, uh, they would have trouble respecting us and liking us. We, we hide, even from people close to us often. And then they hide from God, which is pathetic, but also tragic. He comes to walk in the cool of the evening. Isn't that a lovely picture? God would come and walk with them in the cool of the evening, and they hide. Such silliness. God engages them in conversation. Then he says to the woman, we looked last week, at, oh, two weeks ago, at what he said to the evil one, um, said to the woman, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. I don't know if in the Garden of Eden, if we had not sinned, if childbirth would have been, you know, as easy as burping, you know? Um, or, or whether, but what, is, what, what God says is, I will make your, child, your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So in the work that is peculiarly the province of women, that is, the amazing business of bearing and giving birth to children, their labour will become substantially difficult. It's interesting, according to books I was reading this week, in culture after culture, what women do in that business when they're giving birth is it, it, they use the word labour because it's work. And the sin, human sin, immediately said by God, it will affect women at their work of their, in the area of their specific labour. And it would become much more difficult, very severe. And to the man, uh, in verses uh, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and to the dust you will return. 
Um, you know that when God makes the companion for the man, the, the helper, because he needs help, um, uh, it's not just relationship. It's not just that he's lonely and, and needs you know, someone to be in love with, the way God has made it. But it's also to do the task. Right? So there were, there were sort of work boots under, the, under Adam and Eve's bed as well as slippers because they were working together in the work of the garden. And the man here is told that because of it, the work will, it will now be painful toil and it will be by the sweat of your brow. So work is immediately mentioned by God to these creatures who are like him and who are workers. It will have an immediate effect on us. Work will become harder, harsher, often frustrating, often unproductive, as those particularly who are farmers know. And um, so work is immediately the area that is tragically affected when the workers rebel against the the one who made the garden. So it becomes harder, is the first thing, work. It becomes more dull often, more painful, sometimes even deadly, as we know. The second danger for work, as we look through the scriptures, is, is the danger of taking work too seriously and then the danger of taking it not seriously enough. So it's the danger of idolatry. Right? That Idolatry is a very helpful way to, to look at questions of what, what the Bible means by sin. And idolatry, friends, is when we take something which is um, a good thing and make it the, the ultimate thing. That's a good gift from God, but it becomes the centre of our being. You can do that with sexuality and romance and love. You can do it with work, as some of us uh, will know for all sorts of reasons. And idolatry is a thing we can do with work. That is, that we just think work is the, is the defining reality of me, my hopes, my dreams, my freedom, my security. It all comes from work. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who some of you will know, is a brilliant uh, Welsh preacher. Um, some groups of non-Christians apparently used to get together and listen to recordings of his sermons just because they loved hearing his Welsh accent, apparently. Also, his voice had broken properly, so it sounded really uh, excellent. But before that, he was a, a highly regarded doctor. And he was one time speaking to a group of doctors and he said, quite a few people are born human, but they die as doctors. And, and that can be said about any you know, profession. It's best to say it about your own profession, not someone else's. And so I won't say it in this sermon. But, um, uh, but what he's saying is that your identity, who you are, over time accidentally becomes just defined by your work particularly if it's a highly regarded profession with its own you know, inner mechanisms and languages and systems, etc. So you're born a human, you die a doctor. You're born a human, you die an accountant. You're born a human, you die a minister. Um, and these things are where, where your work becomes the defining reality of who you are. That's idolatry. That that's who you think of yourself as. Uh, a man who I've quoted quite often in church here, I won't bore you with his history again, uh, who, was, who was a very fine lawyer, a highly regarded lawyer. Um, he said, uh, we had a group of young lawyers talk to him one time at church about how they should go about their professional life as Christians. And he said, he said I just never think of myself as a lawyer. He said, it's just, it's just, he is who he was, but he said, it's just not part of how I, but, but your career, whatever it is, can begin to shape who you are and how you relate to others. And you get this, some people who are in, in you know, highly esteemed professions, particularly if they're giving life and death advice, can often become accidentally overly confident about their opinion in every single area of life. Um, 
It can happen to teachers, where without meaning to, they end up teaching, treating other adults, you know, as if they're students who have been naughty. Um, it's, it's a danger in every single profession, born a human, die whatever. And that's because our, prof our work becomes defining who I am. And that's why when we often stop work, quite a few people have various traumas, trying to work out who I am. Um, it's, it's an interesting time for many of us. There was a book that came out some years ago called uh, about golden handcuffs. Many of you will know this term. It gets used quite often now. And it's the way that in, in some of the... The book is about particularly law, the big law firms in the cities and um, the big accountancy firms. And it talks about the way in which many of the brilliant, most brilliant people you know, in our education system end up in these um, professions, in these big companies, and they get what, what is called golden cufflinks, uh, not cufflinks, golden handcuffs. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and the idea is that they actually get trapped. Uh, they're, they're, they're given esteem, and often in work, if you work really hard for the company, they'll, they'll, they'll bless you and speak well of you and reward you. Um, and you mightn't get the same reward at home, which means that's why many, historically it's been men, but it may well be women as well now, that they do less and less at home because they, they get criticism at home. But when they work really hard at work, they get applause. And we do love applause and being esteemed. But also just in money. Um, I think I shared once before that um, in this particular book that came out about a decade ago, um, they were talking about a, a law firm in Sydney and the, one of the senior partners took out the, sort of the new graduates onto his yacht and then took them back to his house, uh, you know, pulled up at the wharf outside his house in Vaucluse and up they went and they had you know, McDonald's or whatever lawyers have it when, when they're impressing each other. And then the moment, which I thought was so interesting, that, that all the, the young lawyers... You know, all looking fantastic, etc., and, and they're looking at this. This guy's got a genuine Van Gogh on his wall, and um, they're all amazed with his this painting. And they're looking at it, and he came up amongst them with a drink in his hand and said, "If you all work really, really hard, I can buy another one of those." <laughs> uh, and and that's that's part of what the, the book is saying. That you think they're going to say, and and they they might be able to. God bless them, you know. But that, that, the, that they, they often work so hard for the guys who are the senior partners where the money goes to. And so in the end, work becomes an, an idol. It becomes far too central. And this is why it's important that the Bible not only pictures uh, humans as, and God as workers, but as resters. So let me read you again. Genesis 1, oh, sorry, Genesis 2 verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work. He uses work three times. But when the Bible wants you to get something, it'll reuse the By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And that's why we are called to rest. So we are called to work. And as Christians, as we'll get to in a few seconds, we need to be those who work hard. Right? Laziness is, is dismissed with scorn in the word of God. We ought to be hard workers. But we are to rest. And if we work so hard, for whatever reason, that we don't get a good, clear day off, we're almost certainly engaged in idolatry. And that is, work has become far too important for us. And that can be almost anything that we do well 
you can fall off either which end you like. But to not have time to rest, to enjoy the creation, uh, to chill out. And it doesn't mean having a day of so you can do all the tasks around the home um, that you haven't been able to do all week. It means to have a day of rest. Uh, as it says in the Ten Commandments, do all that you've, in six days you shall do all that you have to do. But the seventh day is a day of recreation and rest. And if you can't do it, unless you're in some particular crisis, perhaps indulging the health or the misadventure of someone close that you're responsible to care for, you really do need to review that because you're almost certainly way out of balance if you work, 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 but don't rest. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we're way out of balance because we're greedy without knowing it. Sometimes we have to work hard and sometimes we pressure our partners to work hard because we, we have to have that size house and our children go to that sort of school and we have that sort of holiday and we simply can't afford it. So it's not actually that we're workaholics, we're actually just caught up in greed. And if you, if you can't get time to rest, you really do need to take that as a very, that's a red light on your dashboard. Now, there are moments when it will happen, but if, if we're always insanely busy and about to have a sane time, and I'm aware, but you know, we, we've got to be very, very careful in whatever, however noble we feel our work is, that it hasn't become an idol that's taken over everything. And the other side, which uh, Dorothy Sayers picks up, is that we just see money as a, uh, work as a ticket for money, which is not uncommon, right? Uh, a man from whom I learned an awful lot, and I think he's wrong on this, but I don't want to be too quick in saying he's wrong because he, he's in so many ways a better and finer man than I am, but he, I heard him say once that the purpose of work is to put food on the plate and money in the plate. So it's purely instrumental. It's purely a means to an end. I think that's not actually biblical. Um, I think the Bible says that work is not that... Uh, it's got a purpose in and of itself. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And then, you know, various money given to gospel work, plate and plate. So Dorothy says, rightly, says, work is not primarily a thing one lives, one does to live, but the thing one lives to do, which is slightly scandalous. She also has a long go in the article of people who see work as basically about money. It is about more than that. Uh, it, you know, before we needed money and there was any concerns in the garden, we were called to work. And unemployment, when people are unemployed, that is difficult at all sorts of levels, financially. Uh, it's difficult often because it isolates people from realms of friendship. It's difficult because of how it makes a person feel. We need to be finding something useful to be doing where we are of service to others. And we spent a tiny bit of time in our life group on Friday night getting, where people, some people were sort of looking at how does my work impact God's world and others. And sometimes you're a couple of steps removed. You might be working on the, on the computer program that helps the this, that helps the that, that, then it gets out to help people. I think we need to step back some and say, how does my work actually impact God's world? And not just say, well, the pay is good, you know. That is helpful. Uh, but to, yeah, to, to, to see work in love itself. Uh, I'm going to suggest um, that you might, if you want to follow this up a bit more, um, Tim Keller has written a very helpful little book called Every Good Endeavour, which I think is quite a good look at some of the issues of work. There are some areas where some people might want to you know, add other thoughts to it, but it's not a bad place to start, Every Good Endeavour.
Well, let's rush on because we are rushing uh, to have we looked at work as a, as a thing that God has created us to be involved in. It's because of sin at all different ways we can get our work out of balance that will distort me, it will actually distort the job I do, and it will distort various relationships we're around. So to, to, to allow God to reshape us. So that's what's happening in restoration where God is trying to restore us. So Gen uh, Romans 12 is, of course, the great classic verse in this area. We're having spent 11 chapters you know, outlining the grace of God and all that Christ has done for us so that we can enjoy his uh, free forgiveness because of his work on our behalf. He then gets to chapter 12 where he says, In view of God's mercies, I implore you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Do not be conformed to the world which is what you will do unless you work against it. You'll go with the tide. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, right? Allow God to renew your mind in the area of your work. So that's what God uh, wants us to do. He wants us to learn to think about our work and slowly pull our our bad habits that we will have picked up for whatever reason or our overstatement on one side rather than the other to allow God to reshape us so we are in his image and we work uh, in a way that is honouring to him. We meet God as a worker, as a gardener in the early parts of the Bible. We meet Jesus, his son, as a worker. Roughly 30 years, 27 of it, he wasted? No, he worked as a carpenter, technon builder, right? So the two times we see God, you know, really obviously at work, he's a gardener, he's a builder, carpenter, and he's working. And Jesus frequently speaks of himself as having a job. The very first words I think that we hear from Jesus as, uh, when he's on the, on the planet is um, in Luke chapter 2, where he's caused his parents a massive freak out and they find him and he's in the temple arguing with the teachers um, and he says to them, did you, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? Right? And he often speaks of his work. You know, I've, the father has given me a work to do. You know, how burdened I am until I complete the work. And right when he gets near the end of it, he says, Father, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. He had a job. He had a list of one main thing that was on the list. And the second last thing he says in John's gospel is it is finished. That is, the work is done. So when we look at Jesus, who is the centre of everything, he's not only a model of, of uh, the importance of work and the dignity of work, because the Son of God spends um, you know, at least a decade more working in a, in a, a, um, as a builder, but then he comes to do his, his great work of saving, as he describes as a work. It's a job God gave him to do. Right? And he does it. And he does his work in dying for us, and he gives to us the benefit. A bit like a parent works hard to give the children the benefit. And this is what Jesus does. He does the work. We don't do the work. He does the work. And we receive it as a gift. So he says in John 5, 17, my father is working and I'm still working. Right? That's, and then until he gets to the point where he's dead on the cross for us, it is finished. If you look through some of the great passages, we can be, I think we can sometimes get a bit overblown about work. But I think the Bible just is, is um, the sort of passages that uh, this friend of mine, Dave Lamb, looked at. There's a number of passages like this in Colossians 3. It's talking to slaves. And as we, as we looked at, 
The slavery in the first century was not like the slavery we see in the movies in America. It was not ethnically based, and it was often for a period, a limited period. It was still very unpleasant, but families could buy you out of it. You could work hard and your, your slave master might release you. But people suggest, and I think that's right, this is at least a guidance for us when we're working. There's advice for bosses and advice for slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything, not only when their eye is on you to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So, you know, don't just work hard when the boss is in the room and when he's gone off to do work elsewhere, just, you know, break out the monopoly or whatever it is you do in offices. Um, but to work, that the presence of the boss should have no more effect on the quality and the discipline of your work um, one way or the other, because in the end, as he's going to say here, verse 23, Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And this is a Bible theme, really. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The Bible is not keen on lazy bludging as a lifestyle. It's very keen on rest and having holy days or holidays. There's a place for that. But when you're at work... The expectation is that you will be a fine, hard worker. Work at it with all your heart. Working for the Lord. This is the thing that the Bible says. So when I'm at work, um, let's imagine I had a real job. And you, know, you, you, you have, um, instead of thinking about what your boss will think, you've got to think, I'm going to work for this company, I'm going to work for this department, I'm going to work for this, as if Jesus Christ was managing it as if he was my overseer, as if he owned the company, uh, which, is, which you may have heard before and it sounds a bit cute, but that, that, is, that, that is the key, to work as if he was your boss. So you will work hard and you work sincerely and you work diligently. And an awful lot of what Christian workers should be is competent. Now, you might not be the best worker in your particular department because other people are just smarter than you or more experienced than you, but you'll be a person who's working at competence, right? And boy, don't we love a competent person? Don't you love having yourself cut open by a doctor who's, who's studied the stuff? Right? He's not reading a Reader's Digest article, I think, or something like this. Just cut this but, it, but it's done all the hard work and knows his stuff. Right? And that's how you love your neighbour. Be good at your job. So what Dave Lamb worked out was this. He said, there might be more to it, but I should, I've got to work really hard at work and do my job really well as if Jesus was my boss. Here's what happens to him. There's a number of other references from the epistles that are similar to that. The senior, one of the senior partners comes up and says, Dave, your work here is terrific. He didn't say, I don't care about you, I'm doing it for Jesus. He didn't say that. You know, he respected the bloke. And so he was in line to become the youngest ever partner that company had ever had. And then he came back and he says, you know, he only told me this a little while after it happened because he said, here's the funny thing, Ian. I kept working just as hard, but now I was working for the promotion. I wanted the honour of being the youngest partner ever and I wanted the money. Right? Natural enough desires. And he had to deal with himself. But that he was their best worker and likely to become the youngest ever partner is exactly right. That's what it is to be a Christian worker. You'll do your job well. You'll also make time that you rest. You may not work as many hours as some want you to. But while you're working, you'll work as if Jesus himself was with you and was assessing your work. There are other things in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 is the verse that led to the AMP Society being founded and that you work to provide for your family. Ephesians 4, you work, why? 
that you may have something to give away. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Maybe you can retire at the age of whatever. But you, and that's, there's a million different things to do with that. But you might say, I'm going to keep working and I'm going to give all the money that I know I don't need away. And I'm going to become a benefactor, a serious benefactor of others. A friend of mine who was a lawyer, he liked being a lawyer as a young man, began to hate it. The last 10 years, he was enormously respected in his field. He was absolutely top of his field. But he said the last 10 years, he hated it. But he said what kept him sane was when he's in that beautiful office building uh, in Sydney with a magnificent view, uh, he said, I know that people are doing because of what I'm doing. They're doing what I can't do. He said people are working, you know, evangelising at Sydney University and they're running churches in various parts of the world. So what kept him sane was he was working to give. That's a biblical thing, uh, possibility. So by way of, con by way of conclusion, um, you're made to work. You're made to rest. Don't let work become your idol and your God, but always take it seriously. It's a great opportunity to love your neighbour right? and to drive forward the beauty of the creation God has made, to be like him, uh, working and resting. Right? Uh, well, I hope that you'll spend time perhaps with people in similar professions to yourself, working out what does it particularly look like for us to work. Uh, if I was a better man, I might be able to give you a list of the 12 things it means for a teacher, for a nurse, you know, for a tradesman, for a whatever. Um, I don't know enough to do that. It, that's much better if, you, if, if we talk amongst ourselves, share our problems, our challenges. All right, um, let's pray. Father, once again, uh, we see that your ways are not our ways. They're better. And we thank you for the, the great clarity your word has on the dignity of work and the importance of working hard and well uh, with energy and also the importance of resting and uh, not being eaten up by our work. Lord God, help us to have our minds renewed as we trust in your grace. And we want to thank you, lastly, for the work that you did for us, that we could receive such blessings for free in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.